I think one of the more challenging circumstances that we are living into, that we are getting into, is precisely how is it that we are going to entangle the artificial and the organic in a way that they can be part of the same community rather than being in a constant clash. This is AI Murmurings, a podcast exploring intersections of contemporary art and artificial intelligence. I'm Carolyn Strauss, Director of Slow Research Lab, a multidisciplinary research and curatorial platform based in the Netherlands. Conversations here exploring slow approaches to creative thinking and practice aim to awaken latent potentials for AI that are murmuring just under the surface. The podcast is produced in partnership with the Australian Institute for Machine Learning and Sia Furler Institute, both at the University of Adelaide in South Australia. It's part of a first-of-its-kind artistic research program called Art Intelligence. Today, I have the real pleasure of speaking with Oscar Santian, an artist, writer, and cybernetician living and working in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. His multidisciplinary and multivalent practice is characterized by transtemporal wanderings through landscapes, cosmologies, and technologies. We have a lot to talk about. Uh, so I want to say, Oscar Santillan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Caroline, for the invitation. Looking forward to see what type of um, ideas, thoughts, emotions we can share in these minutes. Mm. Well, I'd like to start with um, you. You call your practice Studio Antimundo. And I'd like to start with the name. You describe the antimundo as a practice of exploring the porous membrane of our normative reality. Could you perhaps explain in your own words what the antimundo is and, and tell me a bit how it operates for you as a tool, um, both, as you say, in identifying alternative realities and also in generating new ones? Perhaps I could start with the idea of ignorance. Ignorance is something that I'm deeply interested in. Mm. Or let's say I would love to be very knowledgeable about ignorance. Um, and what, what I mean by this is that there may be among different types of ignorance, there are two at least that I can clearly identify. One is the ignorance that is planned, in, let's say, from a pyramid of power that where certain privileged uh, members of that pyramid uh, impose ignorance over others. Mm. Uh, or, or, for instance, also when an, an army defeats another, then there are aspects of that culture that in the time to follow will be repressed. So there is the interest 
of the powerful to impose ignorance over most people. But there is also other types of ignorance. And for instance, there is the ignorance of um, everything that goes beyond our sensorial capabilities. Mm. Um, so for instance, uh, all the light spectrum that goes beyond what the human eye can perceive. And there may be a third kind of ignorance, which is the self-imposed ignorance, which is um, what we decide to forget, purposely forget, mm. in order to be alive, mm. in order to be able to go on. Um, and, you know, there is this beautiful short story by Borges that is the one where, where I learned this. Uh, it's a story called Funes el Memorioso. And it's about this character, Funes, who can remember everything up to the very last finest detail. Mm. And having such kind of memory that has this kind of one-on-one or one-to-one relationship to reality is, is not a blessing by any means. Mm. It's actually a course. And that's what the, the story goes about, about the necessity to forget the necessity for forgetfulness in order to be alive. So the, the reason why I'm invoking this kind of uh, arbitrary uh, division of ignorances is because precisely the idea of antimundo is about that that we can not know. Mm-hmm because it may be beyond what we can grasp as human beings, uh, as way I just mentioned, you know, regarding the light spectrum, um, or for instance, our capacities to, 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 to smell compared to my dog. Mm-hmm. I know so little about the world around me. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, so there, there are these um, shadows of our senses, the shadows of our cognition, but also going back to the first type of ignorance, it is also the shadow, what I call the shadows of modernity. Right. So what I I try to do with the idea of Antimundo is to bring or to to bring together and to be conscious about how there is so much potential in these different types of ignorances on what goes beyond what we can control, what we can know. Uh, and also in certain moments to remind us that we should know about certain things that, that uh, are there and that perhaps are almost on the periphery of vision. Yeah. Things, things that we can barely uh, grasp. So I'm very intrigued by, by the, you know, by ignorance and grasp by all. The, uh, about mm. forgetfulness mm. and I see the potential for a future there, a future that is is more than the linear consequence of the past. Yeah. So I, I think that that's, that's a very fertile uh, feel for, for different futures. Mm. It's such a perfect segue for me to talk about why I wanted to invite you on the podcast in the first place, because of the intersections with your work and with what we do at Slow Research Lab. And um, 
I mentioned to you, we recently published a book, a new book with Faliz called The Slow Spatial Reader. And for me, there's a section of the book that really best, or the one that best describes Studio Antimundo, or to me resonates the most, is called Knowing and Not Knowing. And um, maybe it's nice for me to to read, you know, uh, to introduce a bit of that book. Um, just a second. So... Philosophers and scientists alike agree that most human beings use only a fraction of their capacities for knowing and getting to know the world. Slow research aims to enlarge that slice by exercising modes of perception and practice that create access to expanded and also more intricate dimensions of knowledge, while at the same time leveraging the potency of not knowing that murky and mysterious terrain of possibility that is always palpably close at hand, yet just beyond our reach. So, um, you know, in the case of your artistic research, there's also this continuous interrogation of, as you said, of these of the forms of knowing that are more privileged, especially in the West, um, or how and how the West has imposed those on other parts of the world, and your focus on non-dominant. Um, epistemologies, right? Knowledge systems uh, and ways of getting to know, yeah, that include identities that have historically, at least over the last few centuries, been excluded, like those from Latin America, where you're from, you're from Ecuador, and which are which are largely rooted in indigenous cultures and cosmologies. Well, first of all, uh, regarding the text that you just uh, read, I thought of um, yeah, the, the idea of how to research in a more embodied way that simultaneously tries to reach the spectrum of things, right? The spectrum of what goes in beyond um, yes. our cognitive and sensorial cap capability. I think that's um I'm definitely interested on that. I think I think there is definitely a need that has become clearer and clearer, uh, I would say, for a more sensorial and also sensual way of uh, of knowing. There is this need for connecting with other ways of knowing. Uh, especially since the pandemic. And why is this? It's because um, so much, I mean, we, we are sensorially deprived um, in these times. Even the textures of life are removed from the screen. The resolution mm. of the image of any Zoom conversation uh, is removes all the all the textures of people. And just to speak about what happens with one of the two senses who uh, that is the most involved in the conversation because you know uh, these are uh, we live in this um, very visually centric society civilization our technologies in this regard are very audiovisual mm. so um and how all of our other senses the rest of our body gets kind of postponed mm -hmm. uh, for later and that later never happens yeah. You know, if I take a little bit of a turn, I have come to believe that the word haptics may become the most important word of the 21st century. 
This term is very important in terms to precisely to discuss ideas about knowledge and the body. And haptics is, uh, you know, is, is very difficult to understand. I do not understand it well. Um, but it is, let's call it for a second, the sensation of having a body. Like that can be one of the ways of describing what haptics is. So uh, it's, uh, it's really the overlap of different senses together that creates a sense of being that is not metaphysical. Um, there is this wonderful, there is this wonderful book. It's a book written by uh, Jaron Lanier. And in that publication, he mentions this thing that what we currently call virtual reality is not immersive. Because it's not an immersive experience and no one really who has experienced virtual reality ever comes out to claim that this has been so crazy immersive. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's always kind of disappointing, right? And, and he says that it's kind of disappointing because uh, precisely it's still what we call virtual reality even nowadays. Most of the devices are very much audio, audiovisual devices. So mm -hmm. there's this very old-fashioned mentality that's embedded in, the, in this new medium. I think it would be very healthy to work in virtual reality that even excludes vision, actually, for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um, so perhaps there we, we can make some exercises, even just as a way of exercising how to sharpen our relationship with mm. our body. Mm. Perhaps we should, we should forget that we have eyes sometimes. I actually wanted to talk about um, how I came to first encounter your work. It was late 2017. I saw a show, an exhibition, solo show called Asterism that was curated by Alexia Tala. And um, the works actually very similar to what you were discussing earlier. The works are were offering a critique of modern science, um, but also of binaries like visible, invisible, human nature, subject, object. And... Um, the the artwork in that show that most that really touched me from a slow research perspective was uh, is called Solaris, and I know you you created it or you titled it inspired by the science fiction um, novel by the Polish writer Stanislaw Flam, um, and of course it was made famous. The title was made famous by a film by Tarkovsky. It's focused on this non earthly landscape that has sentience, that has its own self-awareness and has its own cognition. Um, your project, by contrast, takes place in the, or is situated in the Atacama Desert in Chile, which is an earthly landscape, but it goes well beyond human ways of seeing or knowing such places. It's actually about the landscape seeing and knowing itself. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about it, also about this dissolution of the binaries, why it's important to our world today. Yes. Um, let me start 
in a different point of the of the question mm-hmm. or the reflection that you just shared. And isn't it that so often we rationally say to each other that the, the binary distinction between culture and nature is arbitrary and that we shouldn't be speaking in those terms. Mm. As conscious as we are of these arbitrary distinctions, there is the, the trap of language, the fact that uh, this is something I have noticed for myself, like uh, in conversations around this, uh, a minute after I'm basically excusing myself for having to use the word nature because I am using it in contradiction to something else. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm still trying to work around this, like how to, to jump over the trap of language in these terms of how the words we use somehow are not very useful to address the complexities of our world. And, you know, I I really have no clue about where the answer might be. I don't think it's necessarily about, like, calling nature something else. Um, Perhaps perhaps there are answers outside of language. Mm. Perhaps there is a moment when we we should do a sign when we want to talk about this and to uh, somehow I think there is the need to hack our brains in order to find new connections to the world around us. Mm. So um, said that, I I think, you know, uh, one of the ways to discuss ideas about um, this, this binary distinction between so-called nature and so-called society uh, might be by thinking of decentralization. So it's, it's precisely what happened in Solaris. In Solaris, the ocean of this faraway planet, which is an ocean that presents cognitive um, uh, capabilities, is, is an ocean that has precisely a decentralized cognition it doesn't depend on the illusion that all intelligence is only derivative of the function of centralized brains. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm very intrigued by, by this idea, about by this idea of how when you really look much more closely to how the ecosystems around us, how our body works, it's it, there's this decentralized way in which things are interacting with each other. Uh, Of course, we have the illusion in our brains that somehow we have created the right categories to address this complexity and Mm -hmm. nothing farther from the truth. You know, when you look at the way many artists work, I think there are some clues that could be learned by many others as well. Um, especially when you see artists that work by um, by not having much of a plan as a starting point, but to find the way through the process. Mm. If we would for a second consider the possibility of creating a map, a useful map for humans, for us, for how to um, approach our present and our future, I think 
there are some clues there that artists are providing us as well um, that would be very helpful for others to, to look carefully. I'm also saying this because, you know, um, uh, as, as an artist, I see that type of working, of engaging with the process and figuring out what's happening through the process as, as knowledge production. And I think for me, it's almost like Absolutely. a political a political view that knowledge production is not only what the hegemonic ways of assessing uh, knowledge are telling mm. us. Yeah. And artists are so resource, resourceful in that regard. And it also touches on something we talk about a lot at Soul Research Lab, just sort of recasting these, these concepts, these words, like productivity, success, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And even value, um, yeah, that these are also based on those words, in fact, are actually created by and framed by, you know, capitalist logics of, of uh, production, accu accumulation, consumption. And so they actually are framing very unsustainable narratives anyway. Um, I mean, it goes back to what we were saying about not knowing, at least for me, being as productive as what we would consider to be knowing or what is known. You know, I talked in, in the beginning, I described your work as being sort of not only multivalent, but also multi-temporal or trans-temporal. When I think about your project Solaris, which is how we started talking about this, um, and maybe it will be useful to, to describe it a little bit to, for the listeners, but um, this that the Atacama Desert is also being considered for all of its multiple identities and temporalities. This, you know, there's it. We know scientifically there's a marine fossil record that goes back several million years that this was once an ocean, um, and then there are traces of more recent, from probably in the last ten thousand years, mining activity and other human human activity which has accumulated, which has affected, of course, the atmosphere around the desert, which has affected the materiality of the desert. Yes, listening to you came to my mind a much concise way of defining what antimundo is, mm. the, this idea at the foundation of my practice, and perhaps is the sedimentation of ignorance. Mm. The sedimentation of ignorance, yeah. Um, the other thing that came to my mind was a question for you, yes. which is, do you think we can rescue words like value or productivity from their current bad state where they have become really bad words in, in a way? Mm. I think to the extent that they, I mean, I personally actively use a word like productivity in much more in, in that much more expansive kind of inclusive way that I was describing. Um, I think to the extent that people uh, already understand conceptually what it means, uh, then there's an opportunity to then, you know, it's like what Donna Haraway would call putting a wedge into an existing system. You know, she's always talking about addition. You know, you don't try to, you know, there's no reversal. There's always addition. So, but can you draw? Can you drive a wedge into something that then opens up new possibilities for worlding, for connection? You know, 
she would talk about kinship and those kind of things as well in that context. It's not so much about rescuing as it is about uh, reconfiguring and, and again, sort of expanding how those terms are understood. Shall, shall, shall we get back to Solaris? Yeah, so let's, so, so Oscar, can you please describe so your project Solaris, what it was, not only the outcome, but the process and, and why? So in, in 2016, I traveled to Chile for the first time and I wanted to go to the Atacama Desert. Back then, I was starting to work with astronomers at the uh, Light and Astronomical Observatory here in the Netherlands. Um, and I was aware through them of the importance of that desert for astronomical observations. Um, well, considering that the Atacama Desert is the oldest desert in the planet, and the fact that there is so little humidity in it is, of mm. course, the, the, the dreamland of astronomical observations. Yeah, the most arid place on the planet, right? Yeah, it yeah. is. It is the most yeah. arid place on the planet. And, and you know, like um, for centuries, uh, water and clouds have been the biggest enemies of astronomers. So there are some fascinating stories uh, out there for uh, astronomers trying to fight against clouds. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I decided to go there and without much of an agenda, I just wanted to, to have an experience of the place. And I brought with me uh, by chance initially, uh, Solaris, the, I was reading oh, the, oh. The, the, the novel by Stanislaw Lem. And somehow things click and I realized that somehow this planet, this well, this faraway planet with this amazing ocean, the planet of Solaris, perhaps was manifesting itself around me in the form of a desert. Mm. And this is, is, is very, very intriguing what happened because it's really one of those uh, experiences that... Um, changed my life to be there. I had the opportunity through a friend of a friend in the same in the same trip to, to know about this, this wonderful ethnographer. Uh, her name is uh, Joyce Cortez. And she was doing research uh, back then. Uh, and she's from there. So, so she's from the Atacama Desert. And she was doing research uh, to know or to gather knowledge about how the oldest generation uh, knew many things that the younger generation didn't know about the sky, about the weather. And they have, you know, this really beautiful uh, language, for instance, to describe different types of winds, different types of, um, of natural phenomena that was being erased because of course, in the current grid of knowledge, um, or let's call it like um, normative science, yeah. which by the way, I have to, to make a note here, is to say that um, I don't have a fundamental problem with modern science. I just think it's very incomplete. Yes. So, yes. so um, 
That's um, but but in 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 any case, she really made me in that trip pay attention to this idea that different ways of knowing. What about indigenous ways of knowing? What about the science fiction that I was I was reading in that moment? Uh, the ecology in which I was walking through on these days are all are all entangled in a way that surpasses whatever I knew or anything I knew. And somehow through these connections, I started to search for the cognition in the Takama Desert, for what cognitive capabilities were out there um, that I couldn't identify with my useless knowledge grid. Um, in the end, the work became this. Uh, I gathered several kilograms of sand from the desert. Um, then with the help of some amazing technicians, we melted that sand into glass. I had decided that I didn't want to purify the sand, which is something you usually do, uh, because I wanted to keep the traces of the ecology in the glass. Mm. Um, then that glass uh, was turned into photographic lenses. So we went from the desert to photographic lenses, and then I returned to the desert to photograph the desert with the lens, or calls otherwise the eye made of the desert itself. Yeah. And because the glass was very impure, the images came out in, in a very unexpected ways. Um, you know, a traditional photographer would think that this is probably the worst project ever because all the <laughs> images are kind of like blurry, distorted, and so on. Yeah. But I, I came to realize, and, and you know, I'm not much interested on, on metaphors, I have to say. I'm more interested on, on a kind of poetics that emerges from matter itself. Um, and in this project, like the images, the resulting images are not a metaphor by any means. They are simply documents of how the desert looks at itself. Mm. And that, that would be Solaris, this photographic series composed with the lenses that were produced yeah. from, from, the, from the desert. Yeah, the desert eyes. Yeah. Mm. So beautiful. I love what you just said about the poetics that emerges from matter itself. I'd love to hear how you see this in terms of emerging artificial intelligences. And I'm myself thinking about things like something that to make AIs less, you know, quote unquote, clean, to more accurately mirror the accumulated layers and complexities of our lives. I think one of the more challenging circumstances that we are living into, that we are getting into, 
is precisely how is it that we are going to entangle the artificial and the organic in a way that they can uh, be part of the same community rather than being in a constant clash. There is a, a poem that I think addresses this really well. It makes, it's a poem from the 1960s. It's, it's very utopian in the sense of, and I'm about to mention the title, it has a, a very utopian approach to the question of contamination between ecosystems and artificial systems. Um, but somehow one can be cynical or one can be um, distrustful, rightfully, when thinking about utopian, certain utopian thinking about technology from the 1960s. But I also see that there might be some sparks still there mm. um, that may be useful to revisit uh, with less cynical and distrustful eyes, just for the sake of looking more generously to those thoughts. So the, the, the poem I had in mind now that, that came to my mind while listening to you is a poem by uh, Richard, um, Richard Brautigan. And it's a poem titled, All Watch Over by Machines of Loving Grace. I wonder if I, I can ask you as a favor, if because your accent, of course, is <laughs> much better than mine, if you would mind uh, just uh, reading it. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fairly short poem. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to read this poem by Richard Brodigan, and it's called All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace. I like to think, and the sooner the better, of a cybernetic meadow where mammals and computers live together in mutually programming harmony, like pure water touching clear sky. I like to think, right now please, of a cybernetic forest filled with pines and electronics where deer stroll peacefully past computers as if they were flowers with spinning blossoms. I like to think, it has to be, of a cybernetic ecology where we are free of our labors and joined back to nature, returned to our mammal brothers and sisters, and all watched over by machines of loving grace. That is beautiful. Speaking about contamination, something that I've been speculating about, and this is really what I'm thinking, or what I'm working uh, on at the moment, is, is a hypothesis, and this is a hypothesis that is, is a hypothesis that is inspired by this poem, but is also inspired by the notion of earth beings, uh, which is a notion that comes from a, or is a translation from a Quechua word, that is tiracuna, and is something that has been deeply explored by anthropologist Marisol de la Cadena. And is this notion, we just wanna quickly explain what an earth being is. Imagine that a community um, in the Andes in South America agrees 
that a mountain is a tiracuna, an earth being. So agrees doesn't mean that they are um, uh, giving this attribution to the mountain in an arbitrary way. It simply means that they acknowledge the following. So they acknowledge that the mountain is three things simultaneously. The mountain is an ecosystem with its own plants, with its own geology, and so on. That can be understood from a Western perspective very well. Uh, then the second level of the term also means that the mountain is a sacred place. That also can be understood from a Western perspective, where the sacred has also its dedicated space in the social life mm -hmm. of, of people. Mm. But then the, the third la the layer of it <clears throat> is that the mountain has its own cognitive capabilities. So mm. the mountain is uh, a stream of subjectivity that emanates from its own materiality. It is, it is not like if the mountain is addressed with a spirit inside, but it's actually, there is no spirit. It's just um, the quality. It's a quality that is self-evident for many people in the Andes that comes from the mountain mm -hmm. itself. So if you think about this idea of earth beings, if you think of the poem by, by uh, Brautigan, and now we move into a discussion or a conversation about what is it that, or how is it that ecosystems can connect in a non-hierarchical way with artificial systems. Mm. Because the fear at the moment is that artificial intelligence will work in a kind of like a top-down kind of way. But what about, what about really engineering actually the non-hierarchical relationships in the way those algorithms are being shaped? Yeah. I have to think about Donna Haraway again about her idea of situated knowledges and um, uh, this, you know, specifically she talks and she talks about how different situated knowledges, so different kinds of knowledge, which come from very specific contexts and circumstances and cultures, um, how they they're they're really representing different ways of knowing the world. Um, these encounters between different situated knowledges are she refers to them as contact zones of complex entanglement. And an important thing is that no single form of knowledge is dominant. So when you uh, even if 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 one person is a scientific uh, knower, as she would say, um, they cannot have a claim on the truth. And so there's this horizontality, there's this coming together, like you were just referring to, of, and that creates a richer correspondence. And that's maybe what Brodigan is describing in his poem, is such a zone of contact that is just nothing less than flourishing and transformational for everyone who is in it. Uh, without without these hierarchies. So one of the many issues with um, artificial intelligence, which is not only of artificial intelligence, it's an issue of our civilization at its current state, is 
the virtues and the problems of engineering. I don't remember who said that in the past we suffer from problems, now we suffer from solutions. Hmm. Um, yeah. And there is the assumption, so it's very hard for us at the moment to distinguish where we need more engineering and where we need less engineering. Mm. I'm very intrigued by that, by that question. And I have to say, in that regard, the utopian thinking of the 1960s, I think had some, mm, some clues about it. At least they placed the question, even if it was in a very optimistic way, mm. but they placed this question because mm, they were simultaneously utopian in terms of the potential use of computers and at the same time trying to find different ways of living outside of capitalism mm. and also into you know um, relating to to earth in a, in a better way mm. so there are i think there are mindsets that are possible ways of living that are possible where uh, we can do simultaneously less and more engineering. Mm. I can, of course, I'm not capable enough to determine uh, any of these things. I think, <laughs> I think it's um, this is something that as a as a community of 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 a ignorant, uh, curious uh, people, perhaps we can come to discuss. How do we create this kind of entanglement of the artificial and the organic. One of the big problems for us is, of course, what I, just, what I was just describing, the issue with engineering. Uh, but another issue is language itself. So um, the fact that um, one of the worst things that I think we could aim at is, and I've seen some AI projects, for instance, that do this, is uh, to try to, let's say, translate uh, animal sounds into human language, mm -hmm. right? This uh, is uh, so scary to me. There's a bird speaking behind you as you, as you say that. Yeah, well, <laughs> you see that everyone is opinionated about the topic. <laughs> yeah, but, but you know, then how, how, how do we navigate these waters? without uh, without verbal language. Mm. I think that for me is part of the, the entanglement requires a different type of interface that at least I do not know what it really is. Well, let's talk about the Andean Information Age, one of your more recent projects, and this idea of ancestral technologies you published a book and you made also an installation, um, both with the title, The Andean Information Age. 
And they were artifacts of a recent, longer research project. Was it a couple of years with the curator, um, Alessandra Troncone? Mm-hmm. And Troncone. And um, specifically, you were exploring this device from the Andes called the Kipu. Um, it's important for us to explain to the listeners what the Kipu is. Um, its physical characteristics, of course, for those who don't know, but and what its function is thought to be, but also what your research brought forth potentially about, um, as Alessandra said in a talk that uh, you two do together, the other worlds and ways that can be read through it. Yeah, the, so the, the Kipu um, is a device that has been used in the Andes for thousands of years. Um, it's a device, I, I would say it's a device from the future. And I'm gonna explain in a bit what do I mean by that. But before to explain what the Kipu is, um, mm-hmm. so the, the Kipu is, um, most kipus are made from um, a horizontal cord, so it's a system of ropes, uh, where there is a horizontal rope and there are pendant ropes that fall from that one. And those uh, pendant ropes, they have knots. And so it's a, it's a system for both accounting, the part that has to do with the numeric encoding of the Kipu system is still known nowadays. And it's a system also for textual encoding, but that part is um, not understood at this moment. And the semantics of this device are fascinating because it's not only that the ropes and the knots, or let's say that the shape of the knot contains information. Of course, there are different types of knots that contain different types of information. At the same time, uh, there are different ways in which information is recorded in this or was recorded in these devices. Uh, the color of the um, uh, of, of every uh, pendant say something. The texture, for instance, what type of um, yarn was used for this, you know, it's a uh, contains information. If the twisting goes to the right or the left, yeah, it contains information. So there is there's this materiality, this three-dimensional way of encoding information that is part of this of this incredible uh, device. So um uh, so it's interesting also because it's possible to establish connections to our current technologies, but I think it would be also a mistake to uh, take this richness and to just let's say that it is, I don't know, like, like the binary code of, yeah. of our digital system. It's much more than the binary code. Yeah. You may not be able to turn it into math, basically. <laughs> And yeah. that, and and I know that from uh, looking into your work, that there are, you know, people. The Harvard database does have um, several kipus in it, but not enough to make any kind of robust 
data set that you would need for kind of unlocking dimensions of understanding. And then, and then as you were sort of getting at, I think just how do you include when they're the non-human world is in it, the, the, um, the actual presence of the individual that wove the knots, right. That tied the knots is in it very much again, in the sense of these situated knowledges. I mean, the Kipu itself is a kind of situated, is a, an encoder, an encoder and a, and a transmitter of situated knowledge. We can look at, at language uh, or um, at different ways of encoding information as interfaces meant to allow us to relate to, to the world in a different way. So there are different, there are different tools that allow us to uh, relate in different ways to the reality around us. And something wonderful about the, the Kipu is the flexibility of this type of interface. The fact that it's not, uh, so in, in addition to the numeric, in addition to the record keeping, in addition to the textual encoding, you also have other dimensions of it. So for instance, uh, there is also what is called a, a funerary kipu. And a funerary kipu is a kipu made for the death. And thus um, there, are, uh, there is a line of female uh, kipu makers in, in some small communities in the Andes who still do this. So uh, when someone in the community dies, the kipu maker is given on the task or is commissioned to make a kipu for the dead. Mm. So, so she makes this kipu and the kipu is then put around the body of the, of the deceased. And this person... Mm then is uh, buried with the kipu uh, around him or her. Wow. Um, the idea is that this, this kipu that no one can read because the, the, the textual knowledge has been lost. So also uh, it's unclear to me how these kipu makers decide what type of knot to make and what this symbolizes mm -hmm. for them. Uh, but it's a, it's, in that sense, it's a different code. It's a code that is not accessible to us. Uh, so the idea is that when the, this dead person goes to the afterworld, will be able, will find the instructions for how to navigate death by mm. means of the knots in the kipo. Mm. And so wow. the interface has this incredible flexibility to be contaminated by both life and death. For me, these connections between ancient forms of knowing and emerging technologies happen with this conversation is possible. Then I think, at least for me, one of the most important things is to ask what those emerging technologies, such as artificial intelligence or virtual reality, mm. can learn from these other ways of, yes. from, from these other interfaces. Yes, um, exactly. Yeah, and then, you know, regarding artificial intelligence, you were mentioning the Harvard Kipu database, um, which has for decades has been trying to systematize uh, in mathematical terms, mm. Kipus. What yeah. happens is that somehow there, there is part of the system that it's uh, like, 
okay, so in order to be able to put something into numbers, you have yeah. to understand it somehow, right? Yeah. But what happens, one of the many problems is uh, that the quipus that are suspected to hold textual information at the moment are called um, quipus with anomalies. Hmm. So that's the technical way in which they are defined. Yeah. Yeah. Because they present us with a different code that doesn't match into the numeric code, which is well understood. Um, And they is also very ambiguous to know how do you put that in the grid? Because these entities are not behaving in the way Mm -hmm. that the engineers develop the Mm. system. Uh, and, you know, in the same way, you can think of the notion of anomaly or noise. And this happens a lot also in artificial intelligence. So when you when you receive a, a data set of any kind, then you have to somehow decide as an engineer right. what is what is noise in the system and what is and, and where is the where there is knowledge. Mm-hmm. And somehow the line is always wrong. You see it also with, with, with genetics. And also, you know, with astronomers, you also see that. Mm. Uh, the fact that in order to discover, um, you know, the very precise types of things that astronomers are looking at into the data sets that they are receiving from the observatories around the world, from the from mm-hmm. Atacama Desert, for instance, they have to so-called clean the data set, right, in order yeah. to remove the, remove the uh, noise. And there is always a line, an arbitrary line there. And there is so much, you know, I, I would be tempted, going back to the notion of antimundo, to believe that the antimundo is the noise that the engineers are discarding. That sounds about right. So finally, Oscar, to draw this conversation to a close, I would love to hear a little bit about your new collaboration with the Holt Smithson Foundation, the foundation that was set up to preserve and extend the legacy of the artists, Nancy Holt and Robert Smithson. And that foundation has extended a very special invitation to you as an artist. Congratulations. which I know you can't tell me a lot about it yet, but you have shared with me that your creative response to it will have something to do with AI. Well, for that invitation, which I have to say is one of the most wonderful invitations I have ever received as an artist, um, is an invitation to create a project, a work, um, in the context of an island that Robert Smithson and Nancy Hold acquired in 1972. The following year, Robert Smithson uh, passed away. Um, uh, He was thinking at some point about uh, making a work for the island, but then he changed his mind because this is very intriguing. He had decided already that that he wasn't gonna make any work in the island because he thought that the island was too picturesque in his own words. And he was much more intrigued by um, the post-industrial landscape. Right. Like the work he here in the Netherlands, his only work outside the United States, the, yes. the Broken Circle Spiral Hill, which which is situated in an industrial landscape. Yeah. Ex- in a, exactly. In a, um, a quarry. Yeah. 
Um, so there is this, this island that, um, um, yeah, has, has, has been part of the, of the state of, of both uh, Holder and Smithson, and after they pass away, um, the foundation is inviting five artists to create a project for, uh, the project can take up to 10 years Mm. To be to be creative, also the temporality. Oh, that's beautiful. I think mm. it's beautiful. Yeah. Mm. Um, and for that project, I'm departing from this notion that I was discussing before of how artificial intelligence and ecosystems can relate to each other in a um, in a non hierarchical way. So um, it's it's unclear yet what's going to happen. But let's say that that's the point of departure. So you're imagining that island watched over by the machines of loving grace. I think that's a beautiful way of, of putting it, yeah. That's beautiful. Oscar Santion, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really interesting, enriching, joyful to speak with you and um I know that our listeners are really going to enjoy it as well. Thank you so much for the invitation, for the uh, intellectual generosity. Um, I have enjoyed this conversation so much. This has been AI Murmurings, a project of Slow Research Lab. The music you've been hearing is from The Resonance Canons composed and performed by Christopher Tigner from his album, A Light Below, released in 2019 on Western Vinyl. To learn more, listen, and purchase Christopher Tigner's music, please go to wiresundertension.com. To receive updates on this podcast, subscribe on your favorite podcasting app or follow our Instagram. It's AI underscore murmurings. I'd like to thank programming partners Anton van den Hengel, director of the Australian Institute for Machine Learning, and Tom Haidu, director of SIA Furler Institute, audio engineer Fabian Reichle, as well as the Dutch Creative Industries Fund for their generous financial support. I'm Carolyn Strauss, director of Slow Research Lab. <laughs>